Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Lancashire Live and the Hull Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of, of analysis and political commentary from the North. And uh, after a week off, Dan O'Donoghue's back. Dan, how are you? Hi, Rob. Yeah, not too bad. Just uh, melting like the rest of the country at the moment in this heat wave. So, yeah, I don't know how you're faring. Yeah, before we came on, we were all all complaining about how hot we were uh, and uh, how poorly we were coping. Classic, classic Northerners in uh, in in hot weather. Not that I'm actually from the north, but yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been tough going. Um, but we've got a great episode today. Our two guests are two of the leading figures in our region on the subject of crime and policing, a subject we know that voters really care about uh, when it comes to elections. In a week where the police watchdog revealed that most victims of burglary, robbery and theft aren't getting the justice they deserve, I've been speaking to former Merseyside Police Chief Constable Andy Cook, who's now Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Constabulary, about how our cops need to go back to basics to solve more crimes. And Dan, you've been speaking to Nazir Afsal, the former chief prosecutor for the North West, who's perhaps one of the country's leading voices on issues like child grooming and policing cuts more generally. What's what's he been saying? Oh, he's just a kind of a super interesting and interesting guy. You know, he, um, as you said, like he's dealt with such a breadth of issues in his career. We kind of started our chat, like he's got a book coming out in September called uh, The Race to the, to the Top. And he's interviewed kind of leading figures in politics, business, finance, media, about their experiences of uh, racism and what needs to change, really, to, to kind of tackle that in society. And obviously, we also picked up on the fact, you know, it's something that's been covered extensively by all our new northern newspapers, this issue of kind of child grooming gangs. And, you know, he was, you know, in the hot seat as the Northwest Chief prosecuting, bringing a lot of these gangs in kind of Rochdale and, and those kind of areas to justice uh, over the last 10 years. I thought it was, it was quite a an eye-opening comment from him really he kind of said you know he knows of many other councils where you know child protection issues haven't really been dealt with properly and he said you know there needs to be more reviews but a lot of councils apparently don't really want to tackle this issue they say to him you know this is in the past you know we've we've moved on and you know he made the point obviously that you know for the victims in those towns and areas they've not moved on so I mean, you know, and then we ended with, because uh, he's just as well, he's just took on, um, he's, he's the Chancellor now of the University of Manchester. So we kind of ended with this chat about um, this kind of war on woke on campuses, because I know certainly before the leadership election, the Tories were kind of angling for this new kind of uh, crackdown on woke mobs, as, as I think the former university university minister described them. So he just kind of gave it a lot of short shrift, to be honest, and dismissed it all as a bit of nonsense. But but no, it was a, it was a really kind of interesting, wide-ranging chat, to be honest. Sounds like a great listen. We'll, we'll look forward to that. Now, it's been another week where I think the main political story nationwide has been the Tory leadership contest. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have had another hustings in Darlington after being in Leeds last week and Manchester next week. I mean, Dan, what have been the big issues coming out of it as far as as far as you've seen? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I just find it very scrappy. It just seems, I mean, my you know mailbox, it seems to be just um, a press release will come out from Liz Truss's team having a little bit of a dig at Sunak and then five minutes later, there'll be a rebuttal and it'll go back and forth like that. But I don't know. I think it's been a bit of an unedifying week just in terms of, um, you know, what's interesting to our listeners and readers because 
we had the whole kind of furore about, you know, Liz Trust suggesting these regional pay boards or pay rates, which obviously would really hit the North during a cost of living crisis. And then, you know, you had Rishi Sunak kind of boasting about stripping cash out of urban areas and pumping them into the South. But I mean, I suppose, and, and we may well see more comments like that because obviously they're going to give hustings and stuff to the Blue Wall, I think, today and this week. And I suppose that tells you a lot about this whole contest, really. They're having to be all things to all people because the Tories, you know, obviously Boris Johnson won a lot of seats in a lot of areas that were never traditionally Tory. So it's kind of maybe highlighting the fact that it's quite a shaky coalition of voters between, you know, the Shires and the Red Wall and trying to kind of win over both. Um, I think both candidates are struggling. You know, they're obviously putting the foot in it in some respects. And, you know, we saw, you know, Ben Houchin, the, the Teesside Tory mayor, kind of kicking off a bit this week saying, you know, he wasn't too happy with what they've been saying on the cost of living. I mean, I don't know what your impression of it all has been, uh, Rob. Yeah, I, I have to say I uh, agree. It does seem like uh, they'd be more interested in tearing strips off each other than coming up with uh, any kind of measures that are going to help people in the short term. And I guess they, they, they're they saying that they want to wait until they're actually in power to potentially provide more support. But I think it does seem like there's a bit of a, a vacuum in government at the moment and we're all just in a bit of a holding pattern for, for the next month until the next prime minister comes in. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, Labour are taking full advantage, aren't they? Or Labour leaders up here. I see that uh, Steve Rotherham and Andy Burnham have been joining Gordon Brown in calling for an emergency budget, I think, and in, in the North East, uh, the likes of Kim McGuinness, who's the Police and Crime Commissioner, and the, the North of Tyne Mayor, Jamie Driscoll, have been saying that, that, you know, the two main candidates, they can't just walk away from uh, this cost of living crisis, which I think is an accusation that uh, many are levelling at them at the moment. So how long this can hold for, how long maybe they're going to have to come out with some some more concrete proposals, or maybe they think, you know, for the people who are going to be voting them in, the Tory selectorate, perhaps those people are less in need of hearing those kind of things, and they're, they're, they're better off sticking to their key message of, you know, tax cuts and what they're going to do for people who are perhaps a bit bit better off. Yeah, I, I did just want to mention, just on a slightly um, left-field issue, you mentioned Steve Rotherham there. I was obviously uh, off last week, and I was up visiting parents uh, who live on Merseyside. And I've got to say, I know you've covered this extensively in the newsletter, Rob, but it is shocking that the major bus route there, Arriva, is, they've been on strike now, I think, for... 24 days I think there's been no bus route so basically that the Wirral where I'm from is completely cut off from Liverpool really up for buses so it's an absolute nightmare to, to get around the city you know there's queues for taxis like down the street you know getting on taxis and stuff and I just thought like you know if something like that were to happen in London like London buses just stop for 24 days I think it'd be back-to-back um, you know news coverage on all the news channels you'd hear about nothing else would you if it, if no. it was happening in the capital that's for sure yeah. That's a very good point. Well, let's hope for the, the uh, hard-pressed people of Merseyside that that, that uh, strike gets sorted out as soon as possible. Well, that's what's going on up in the north. So why don't we hear a bit from our two main guests today? I'm joined now by a renowned lawyer and former Northwest Chief Crown Prosecutor, Nazir Afsal. Nazir became the UK's first Muslim Chief Prosecutor in 2011 and is known for his tireless anti-racism work and his involvement in bringing grooming gangs to justice. Nazir, welcome. 
I wondered if we could just start with your new book, The Race to the Top, and the comments you made in there calling out the structural racism in British society. Mm. I think you said the country was crying out for more minority leaders. I just wondered if you could expand on that point. Yeah, I mean, the the book came out of a conversation I had with the former Prime Minister, or former before former, <laughs> Theresa May. Uh, and uh, she said, well, Nazir, if you're the chief prosecutor, how can there be structural racism in society? And I said, well, have you got a few minutes, Prime Minister? And to her credit, she listened and she realized that just because you're in a position of power or influence or, you know, at the top of your profession does not mean that you've not had to face obstacles or that you continue to face obstacles. And so the book is a a series of uh, interviews that I've carried out over the last year with people, high profile figures, including uh, mayors and and the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, and others, to try and understand what they want to think about the world we are in now, Britain today, and, and what Britain could be in the future if it resolves some of these um, long-standing problems. And um, I, I'm touched really by the um, response of the people who share their stories with me. Some of them are, I'm afraid, have had to anonymize because they're scared to death about talking about their experiences. I'm talking about people who are really powerful, Dan, people who are, you know, you would know who they are. They're in the top 100 list of whatever professional organization they're in. And even they felt scared. And uh, why should people feel scared to talk about their experiences and, and what they're feeling right now. And I, I hope that when the book comes out in, in the middle of September, that people will be able to share their uh, share what's going on and get a better understanding of what, what challenges we still face and, and make it much easier for the next generation, my children, your children and others, um, to enable them to not have to deal with the problems or obstacles that we've had to face. I mean, how how do you push back on, I mean, I suppose through um, the conversation you had with Theresa May and the, and the book that you're now bringing out, but how do you kind of push back against comments like that? I mean, we see it quite often with Boris Johnson where he kind of points to the fact that Tories have had three ethnic minority chancellors and a home secretary as evidence that, you know, multiculturalism is flourishing and opportunity is open to, to all of mm. different backgrounds. And clearly, you know, your interviews and experience would suggest perhaps otherwise. I mean, how, how do you kind of push back? Well, you know, uh, the, uh, we have to make it very clear that people who achieve the best have, have worked really, really hard. And I'm not going to criticize or, or comment on any individual that's reached the top and, and done so. But I'm pretty sure that if you spoke to um, some of those individuals, you've mentioned some of those people who are at the top, they will talk about terrible experiences that they're facing or have faced um, because of um, their color. And um, again, I don't want to preempt what's in the book. I mean, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about it um, from my HarperCollins' perspective until it's published. Um, but you will get a sense that actually just working hard, we've, we've, we often talk about this, if you work hard, you'll get where, wherever you want to. Actually, uh, it doesn't work that way. You can work extraordinarily hard and not get anywhere. And also some people, uh, and I call them um, Gavins. Uh, no disrespect to any Gavins out there, but I'm referring to one particular Gavin who was a, a minister, if you remember rightly. Um, they can fail and they can fail, they can fail, they can fail, and they'll still be promoted. And uh, if Gavin was Gavin Khan or Gavin Singh or Gavin Patel, rest assured that any one of his failures would have been magnified so much and amplified so much that that would have been the end of their career. So uh, we still have a significant problem. But as I said, I wish, I'd be, I, wish I was able to talk to you about it in any more detail. But until the 16th of September, I am prevented from doing so.
Well, not 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 meaning to uh, get you in trouble with your publishers at all, but I'm, I suppose just um, you know, obviously you, you mentioned Theresa May kind of asked you a couple of years back to kind of look at some of these issues, and you know, not not too long ago, I don't, I don't know if you remember the uh, Leeds Imam Karia Sin, who yeah. was um, sacked earlier yeah. this year as the government's yeah. advisor on Islamophobia. You know, he he claimed that he was sacked because it was a kind of a cover up and a failure over the last three years of the government to come up with a definition of Islamophobia. I just wonder what your take on that situation was and really how much kind of culpability there is at the top, I suppose, for some of these issues. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know Kari. Kari is extraordinarily bright. Um, what, he, what he doesn't know about the subject of Islamophobia isn't worth knowing. He is really at the, at the cusp of it. And what he said was quite simple, that he wasn't supported. You, what the government did was appoint somebody you know, in a role not give them any support, not give them a team to work with them, not give them the resources to be able to do their job. And then, of course, they're doomed to fail. You know, uh, there's no point having a figurehead. You know, you, you are the Islamophobia star or you are the anti-Semitic hate star and then just leave them to it. You've got to give them the support. And Kari wasn't given the support. And that tells me a great deal, actually, about how seriously you actually take this subject. You know, if you just have a figurehead and don't give them uh, the resources to do their job, then you're not taking it seriously. And I'm afraid that's uh, that's quite a common occurrence. Um, and uh, you know, you, meant, you look like you're doing something, but you actually aren't doing something. So, you know, I hope you know, one of the things I, I'm I'm about to launch or support the launch of is um, something called the Islamophobia Response Unit, the IRU, uh, and that's a charity that's been set up with with volunteers and, and a couple of lawyers and they want people to share their experiences and to get some advice about what's happening to them uh, in order to be able to take it further if they need to um, and I think you do need that kind of uh, support because people as I go back to my earlier conversation uh, people are really scared to talk about what's happening to them and uh, they, have they, have, they feel there'll be career consequences, they feel there may be personal consequences, you know, you mentioned so-called grooming gangs earlier, the immediate aftermath of that down when I prosecuted that was that I, the far rights came for me. You know, I was the one that got every decision right, but I damaged their narrative, their narrative being that all brown people are sex abusers. And um, so, you know, I had thugs outside of my front door. I had all manner of abuse that I was receiving and still do. So, you know, there's a personal cost to, to you know, putting your head above the parapet. And I think it's important to um, recognize that um, you know, people need to be more courageous, absolutely, but people need to be supported when they are courageous. I think it's just important to note as well, you know, that this is not just an issue in kind of politics or a political issue, because, I mean, we only need to look at, you know, all the harrowing testimony coming out of uh, cricket in recent months, you know, in, in yes. Yorkshire cricket in particular, you know. So it, it really shows... Azim is, one, Azim, Azim, Azim is one of the people I've interviewed for the book. And, um, you know, he details in some great you know, shocking detail what happened to him. And of course, only last week or two weeks ago, we learned that Cricket Scotland um, similarly were institutionally racist. So, um, you know, we just have to, we just have to peel the top layer off and guess what? We'll see these terrible things happening. And, you know, I'm afraid to say there is no part of British society and that includes the media, that includes journalism you, you know it's not just about race though look at class done you know uh what is it i think seven percent of uh people go to private school but you know maybe half of all columnists in this country are private school uh you know certainly most uh parliamentarians 
um, particularly on the conservative side, are private school. So uh, it, there's a there's a lot of issues about class. There's a lot of issues about gender. There's a lot of issues about race. All of which we try and pretend we have resolved, uh, and we have not. And they are um, magnified when we when we look to what happened during COVID. I asked my brother during COVID. You know, when when you think about what happened during those periods, people who were from deprived communities suffered most. Most, you know, if you were living in a ten. 10 people are living in a house with three bedrooms, you're all going to get COVID, you know? Uh, and so deprived communities, people who are um, seen as, um, you know, the people who are suffering at the bottom uh, suffered most whenever there is a crisis. And, and we're, we're seeing the same thing with the energy crisis right now, you know? Um, you know, we, 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 somebody having to pay £4,000 a year when they've been paying £1,000 a year for energy, where is that going to come from? You know, I, I, I spoke to some teachers recently and one of them shocked me. She told me that she had to go to the same food bank that the parents of the children or one of the children that she was uh, teaching went to. You know, you would imagine that teachers, you know, professionals, educated, university graduates, etc., etc., would somehow be immune from this. But the reality is all of us are being hit hardest. We hear endlessly about kind of reviews and commitments to tackle some of these issues, and it always just seems to lead to another review. I mean, I just, I wonder, you know, you, you must have a deep sense of frustration that, you know, you're not seeing much. 100%. So I'm current, currently, I'm chairing the review of London Fire Brigade. London Fire Brigade approached me, the mayor of London approached me and said, um, after Grenfell and everything else has happened in there, can you review the culture of London Fire Brigade? And I said, yes, I will start. I did start in November of last year. I'm dev- devoting three days a month, and I will complete it by November of this year. So in November of this year, I will be publishing my review. I have carried out, or my team have, hundreds of interviews. and uh, you know, I think there is no point having a review, firstly, because w- generally when you hear the, uh, the words that really shock me and always make me frustrated are, lessons will be learned. <laughs> How many times have you heard that? Right, and nobody has ever learned a bloody lesson, have they? Um, so I, I want to make sure that the review I carry out is fit for purpose. It's done in a timely fashion. You know, think about the, the very, very good review that's been carried out into child abuse, in the um, in the inquiry into child abuse. But it's been going on now for six years, uh, and it will tell us next year what things were like six years ago. I, mean, I don't know how useful that's going to be. You know, um, so I think yes, reviews, but let's. Keep, firstly, keep the lawyers out of it because they always tend to prolong these things. And secondly, make it happen faster, rapid. I think in the you know in the immediate aftermath of Hillsborough, for example, the most terrible incident in Hillsborough. The, all right, the, it took thirty odd years for justice, but in the immediate aftermath and some justice, but in the immediate aftermath, there was a rapid review carried out. It took thirty days. Uh, and what they found was, you know, you have to change the way people are, are, are accommodated in stadiums, and they brought the change very, very quickly. So we know we can do it. We know we can do rapid reviews that will, will make a difference. Um, but unfortunately, we seem not to do that. And I go back to my point, we don't ever learn from our reviews anyway. Just talking about reviews, I mean, you, I don't know if you would have seen the uh, the extensive review that was carried out of uh, kind of grooming gangs in Oldham uh, recently yeah, yeah. And, and kind of the council's response and you know, how yeah. vulnerable children were perhaps failed in, in those situations between 2011 and 2014. I just wondered what you kind of made of that report and whether you kind of thought you know, the issues were now being satisfactorily addressed. Um, in, I, in you know, I don't know. The, I, don't, I don't know the detail. All I, I do know, I mean, is, I, I do know that um, the people who carried out the review are extreme experts in this field. They would have taken the evidence. They came to a view that 
it, there were terrible things that happened, but things progress has been made. And I'll accept what they have to say based on what they have learned. But again, I do sense, not necessarily about Oldham, but I do have a sense of denial around the country. Uh, I've approached some towns, for example, and said, why aren't you carrying out a look into what's going on or had gone on in your areas? And they said, "Moved. we've moved on. <laughs> right? I'm afraid, Dan, they may have moved on, but the children who were victims have never moved on, you know, and can't move on. So uh, we've got to we've got to tackle that issue of denial. I think Oldham has very specific problems problems because of um, you know, if you, the, the race riots that took place 20 years ago, you know, um, there were clearly race riots, and um, there was you know issues back then about segregation and all sorts of things. So Oldham is a very very uh, has been historically a very toxic place. Um, I'm hopeful that having carried out this um, review and that the council are serious about um, bringing about a change, that that will change things. Um, uh, as I said, I don't know enough to be able to say whether or not they will or not. Uh, but I think we need to take the politics out of it and focus on the victims. Uh, and then if we do that, we might actually make some progress. As I so often said, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And how do you go about tackling that where you perhaps maybe got a hostility or, you know, a resistance to, to open a review? You know, you mentioned some councils there, perhaps a bit resistant. Yeah. How do you how do you address that really? How do you how do you Well, I'll tell you how I do it, Dan. I call them out. <laughs> I think you, uh, if you, I think if you go back through my Twitter feed, you'll see that some of those councils I, I, I haven't mentioned today, I have actually talked about why they haven't done anything. But also, sometimes just calling them out isn't good enough. So, you know, I will reach out to them. And I'll say, look, what's your problem? Why are you not doing what you need to do? Do you not see the, the impact it's having on, on public confidence? You know, people just don't trust you anymore because you aren't looking back at what you may have done wrong, you know? Uh, and, we, and public authorities generally, in fact, every agency, you know, public and private, don't like saying they're wrong, you know? Well, in the Rochdale grooming gang case, if you remember, or people remember, you know, initial decisions were taken that were wrong. And I went out there and said, the, we made them, we got them, we have to fix it. But you can only fix it if you admit that you got things wrong. And I think people need to grow up, uh, treat the public as adults, uh, and actually remember that victims don't move on until you have a response that they can have confidence in. And finally, uh, you, you've just been appointed uh, Chancellor at the University of Manchester. Con congratulations on that. Thank I, you. I wondered if I could um, get your take on this uh, so-called war on woke on campuses. Because yeah. I, I did, a, I did a, an interview with the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Salford a couple of months back. And around that time, the former Universities Minister, Michelle Donnellan, said that she wanted to kind of bring forward legislation that would include fines to crack down on, and these are her words, woke mobs, that are apparently yeah. preventing debate at universities. I just wonder what you made of this whole whole kind of debate. Well, as you know, uh, going back to where we started, I've got a whole chapter on it in the book. But um, uh, so I'm going to be a little bit um, circumspect about what I say. But I think people you know, have been weaponizing this issue um, to the point where they're trying to divide us, and I mean politicians generally. Being woke is simply wanting others to be treated as you yourself would want to be treated. It's uh, saying that I don't want to be treated unfairly, I don't want to be discriminated against, therefore I wouldn't want you to be treated unfairly or discriminated against. That's all it is if you try and complicate it and suggest that some kind of us and them scenario. And, you know, um, I'm privileged and honoured to be the, the Chancellor of Manchester University and I'm looking forward to the next seven years. I know the institution is 
uh, world-class, and we all know it is world-class. But at the same time, we recognize that we have a responsibility to students too. It's not just about um, academic freedom, which is clearly important, but it's also about students and being, being able to flourish and not be discriminated against and not be treated unfairly. And those are the things that I think that we need to be to have it have it at the front of our minds all the time. And I think so. I don't buy into this. You know, some things are woke or some things are not. We have the opposite of woke is being asleep. You know, do you really want to be asleep? You know, we should look around and see what needs to be changed. We we're in the twenty first century now, and as I said. Um, again, I need to cut my uh, conversation and, and urge people to go and read the race to the top in the middle of September uh, because there's a whole chapter on the subject. And, I, you know, I, as I think, and as I said a moment ago, I think this whole conflict, this whole culture war is just made up to divide us. There's a stark warning in a report out this week from the police watchdog which says the police response to burglary, robbery and theft is not consistently good enough and victims face a postcode lottery when it comes to how thoroughly officers might investigate crimes. It's a pretty worrying conclusion and Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services has called for forces to go back to basics to ensure they are conducting investigations effectively. At the top of the organisation, which scrutinises the performance of forces across Northern England and nationwide, is Andy Cook, a former Chief Constable at Merseyside Police and an Assistant Chief in Lancashire. He took over as Chief Inspector of Constabulary earlier this year. And while he was at Merseyside, the force was graded the highest performing of its kind in the country. So who better to give us a sense of where our police forces are going wrong and also what they're doing right? So Andy Cook, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Nice to have you on. So I'll just read um, a line from you from the report, which says, it is my view that the current low positive outcome and charge rates for serious acquisitive crime are unacceptable and unsustainable. So how did we get to this situation in your in your view? I think there's numerous factors in relation to it, Rob, starting with the fact there's been an extended period of austerity uh, where policing lost an awful lot of resource. And had to focus that resource on the increasing demand that policing was under, whether that was in relation to 999 calls or other parts of business. Policing's also picked up an awful lot of, of, of the responsibilities of what for what some people think belong to other agencies, like mental health issues and social work issues and youth issues. So there's an element that that's the correct amount of resource and the correct uh, amount of prioritization wasn't necessarily given to burglary, robbery and, and theft from and of vehicles, despite the fact these are issues that really strike at the heart of our communities and really do, um, people really do expect policing to be able to protect them in their own homes and their own communities. So policing did, to an extent, take their eye off the ball in relation to it, uh, and it's the inspectorate's view that they do need to focus on these issues to improve what is uh, a very poor charge rate for all those offences. Now, you, you've called for forces to go uh, back to basics to ensure they're doing better investigations. What, what does that mean in, in, in this context? This isn't rocket science. This isn't about improving technology necessarily, although that's one part of it. This is about ensuring that the basics are being done correctly. So when someone phones the police to say that they've had a burglary in the house, 
that the coal handler, who I accept is under a lot of pressure and demand, that the coal handler uh, gives the right advice, is sympathetic and, and, and understanding of the situation, that tells the, the, the householder not to, not to touch any of the parts of the building where they believe that the offender have been, to preserve that forensic yield, uh, and also gives some, some basic crime prevention advice at that stage or ensure, ensures that happens later on. Now, sadly, in, in the vast majority of, of um, reports that we went through, and there's over 400 of them, in only 28% of those did the call handler give any forensic advice. Uh, and obviously what that means is when the police do attend or the police are dealing with that issue, then it may well be that any forensic evidence has been lost. Right from there, looking at the, the back to basics again, we need to ensure that those who are investigating these crimes have adequate supervision. And in a third of the cases that we looked at, that supervision wasn't intrusive enough. Because bear in mind that we've got a very young policing workforce, there's a good deal of inexperience within that. So supervisors do need to ensure that every investigative opportunity has been followed up quickly um, and professionally. And finally, we found also that the, the police in, weren't offered enough contact in victims to update them in relation to how the case was going. So that leads to a breakdown in confidence and trust with communities. Uh, so right through that whole process, uh, there are mistakes being made that if they are rectified, that charge rate will undoubtedly increase. So, yeah, it's really about doing the simple things well as a, as a starting point. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, so one of the things we talk about quite a lot on this podcast are issues like, you know, the North-South divide, regional inequalities, levelling up, that kind of thing. And obviously you're, you're a former chief constable in Merseyside in Lancashire and you, your previous job before becoming chief inspector was looking after the northern northern forces. Did you, in your report, did you detect there was any kind of regional differences in, in, in the response, perhaps between policing in more affluent uh, areas and maybe less affluent areas that had more sort of social social challenges? I mean, the vast majority of, of, of burglaries particularly occur in Greater Manchester, West Midlands and London, because they're the three biggest police forces that cover the, the biggest areas. Uh, so that's, that's to be accepted to an extent. What we did find, though, was that an awful lot of good practice actually emanated from the Northern Forces. So numerous... Um, items that we've placed in the report come from the likes of Durham, West Yorkshire, Merseyside, uh, Lancashire, Humberside, all of whom are doing parts of this approach really well. No one's joined up all the dots and is getting it perfectly right, because if they were, the outcome rate, the charge rate would be higher. Uh, but there's an awful lot of good practice, certainly uh, across the north of the country. That's interesting. I mean, I've, I saw, I was looking through the report myself, and there's a few... Things like Merseyside Police have something called Operation Castle, yep. which is a, a publicly branded burglary project, and uh, Operation Checkpoint, which is a Durham Constabulary Deferred Prosecution Scheme to uh, prevent reoffending. So, how easy how easy is it for when one force is doing something well for other forces to sort of learn learn from it? Is that happening enough? It's not happening enough, and we make mention of that in the report that forces need to look externally for where others are doing it particularly well and learn from that. Now, every approach won't fit every force, but there's certainly enough good practice right throughout this report and that's going on 
to ensure that there is, there'll be something there for every force to learn from. So we're saying to them, we're calling out to them to say, have a look what's outside, have a look what's working well and start adopting the same practices. I saw one line in the report, which uh, was from South Yorkshire Police, which said that they calculated the cost of a single burglary to the force as £530 and the cost of police intervention in a hotspot is £556. So just a little bit more, which suggests that the best way for police to tackle this problem is not to wait for crimes to be committed, but to try and intervene early and stop them happening in the first place. And is that something, to, to what extent is that happening across, across policing as a whole? Some forces best than others. Uh, and you're right, South Yorkshire have identified how much that costs. And we see in the likes of Humberside Police that uh, they have a really good um, problem-orientated approach to these issues. Um, so they do try to be proactive and preventative, as do a number of other forces in the north as well, because obviously prevention is better than the cure. Um, and if you can prevent those offences happening through using good analysis, through using um, good intelligence, through ensuring that you've got the right officers in the right places at the right times, then that obviously stops another individual in our community from going through the, the, the hurt of having the house invaded. A more general uh, question. Obviously, your organisation scrutinises the performance of police forces up and down the country. And in our patch in the north, there are two Greater Manchester Police and Cleveland Police who are in uh, what you might describe as special measures uh, and with the aim of being to bring them back up to standard. Obviously, Greater Manchester's got a relatively new Chief Constable Stephen Watson from South Yorkshire. Uh, given that you know, you're paying special attention to these forces, how close are they to getting back to the standard that people in those communities would, would expect? I think both forces are making improvements. Uh, both Cleveland and Manchester. Cleveland has a very new Chief Constable in Manchester, obviously. Steve Watson has been there for just over 12 months, I think. Uh, so both are focusing on where they need to improve. And I think it's fair to say that in Greater Manchester, we've seen some good improvements in a short period of time. Um, good increases in arrests, good increases in actually detecting more crime and looking after people better and responding to calls quicker. Um, so they are very much on a positive trajectory. Um, and in September, we returned to Greater Manchester to do a further inspection to see exactly where they're up to uh, and what the next move needs to be in relation to their current status. Cleveland Police, um, Cleveland still uh, has a lot of work to do to, to continue to improve, but I have every confidence that the new Chief Constable will take the force forward and improve the policing service to the people of Cleveland. Andy Cook, thank you very much for speaking to us today. It's a pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 
Also, check out the other Laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.